I'd like for you to turn to 1 John chapter 5. And I want to read verses 16 through 21 of 1 John chapter 5. Preach this sermon under the title of The Sin, Committing the Sin That Leads to Death. And discovered in the early service this morning that this is pretty heavy and detailed. and You may want to take a note or two. You may want to rework this thing when you get home. I may, I may want to <laughs> rework this when I get home. If anyone, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin that leads to death, I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God continues to go on sinning. It's in linear action, present tense, Greek form. Does not go on sinning as before. He, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. I went out to visit when I was uh, pastoring a small church while, while attending the seminary in Fort Worth. And I, I, I visited this guy, and, and at the end of our interview or conversation, he said, I'd like to ask a question. He said, what is the sin that leads to death? I didn't have the slightest clue what he was talking about. But I had my seminary um, uh, degree and my seminary uh, attendance to, you know, to hold up there. And so I wasn't about to admit that I didn't know what he was talking about. And so I stumbled around there and I gave him some off-the-wall answer because I'd never heard of the sin that leads to death. I'd never read this verse, perhaps. I don't remember it. I never heard it expounded. I've never heard a sermon preached on the sin that leads to death. So I didn't have any uh, point of reference. I had no knowledge of what it meant. Do you? When the writer of this book, this letter, wrote these words, it is obvious that he assumed the readers would understand what he was talking about because he didn't go into any kind of detail to define what he meant by the sin that leads unto death. So is there a point, a reference, to which he could point and these readers understand what he was talking about? Who commits the sin that leads unto death? Only a Christian. It is a sin that only a Christian can commit. Now he's not talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is to show contempt for the Holy Spirit. Jesus made clear what that was. He said, when an unbeliever receives the witness of the Holy Spirit to the deity of Christ, and he shows contempt to that witness, that is, does not receive that witness that Jesus is the Son of God, deity, then he has committed, he, he commits in that contempt 
the sin that is unpardonable, that is, the only sin that Jesus cannot forgive is the sin of receiving as an unbeliever the witness that He is deity, the Savior, and rejecting that. God cannot forgive that. What we're talking about is not that kind of sin. We're talking about a sin that only believers can commit. You say, how do you know? Well, John makes it very plain in the text. He says, he refers to brothers here. If a brother, brother, he uses the term, which is a code word for believers. Now, he has just finished the epistle to which he is writing to new Christians, to Christians concerning this Christian lifestyle. And he is encouraging these little children to live the Christian lifestyle. And he talks about love and light and fellowship. He talks about forgiving one another. And he comes to the end of the epistle and he warns these believers lest they commit the sin that leads to death. So what is this sin that leads to death? It is the sin that a Christian commits with a high hand that leads to a premature death. I need to say that again. It is a sin that only a Christian can commit with a high hand, arrogantly, that leads to his premature death. Now, some points of clarification. The first point of clarification is this that it would be a gross mistake to take every premature death of believers and brand that as the sin that leads to death. That would be a terrible, tragic mistake. As a matter of fact, David Brainerd, who was missionary to the North American Indians, died when he was 29 years old, a pious and godly man, so pious that oftentimes Living among the North American Indians, he would spend all night praying in the snow for their salvation. And if he had not died prematurely, I'm convinced that the North American Indian would have been evangelized by David Brainerd, who died when he was 29. Robert McShane is Scotland's most profound voice, was Scotland's most profound voice, a godly man whose pulpit exuded the power of Christ, and he died when he was 29. Charles Spurgeon, Britain's greatest expositor, whose messages still live long after his death, died when he was 58. It is not, it would be a terrible mistake to say that every believer's premature death is the sin unto death. Not that. The second point of clarification is that this sin he's talking about in the construction of the original language suggests a continuous and repeated lifestyle. It is the continued, repeated lifestyle of a Christian that leads to a premature death. Now, I think it would be well for us this morning, then, to go through the Bible and find examples of the sin that leads to death and put a name on those sins. And with the help of scholarship, I have found seven references that I believe are sins unto death committed by believers. The first is the sin of Achan. It's found in the sixth chapter of Joshua. Now when the armies of Israel are about to march on the city of Jericho, prior to that, God says to them, God gives them prescriptions about how He wants them to handle the spoils. 
and he says there are some things that you are to take from the city of Jericho and place in the tabernacle, and the rest you are to leave alone, and he puts them under what the Bible calls the ban list, B-A-N. And there was a man in that group by the name of Achan who took some of those spoils, those treasures, and he buried them in his tent. And the result of that was that when they went to the next battle in Ai, they were defeated, and God brought Achan out and exposed his sin and put Achan and his family to death. And the sin is this. It is the sin of a carefully planned deceit. And immediately you know of two New Testament illustrations. They are Ananias and Sapphira. And in the fifth chapter of the book of Acts, when the Spirit of God was moving in the church, the early church, they were bringing their possessions and selling them and, dis- and, and, and placing the value of their possessions at the, at the apostles' disposal to place among needy families within the church. And this man and his wife were deceptive in that they said, we've brought all the money from the sale of our land and placed at the feet of the apostle. It was a carefully planned deceit and God struck them dead immediately. It is the sin of pretense It is the sin of insincerity. It's this wanting to make people think we're spiritual when we're not willing to pay the price of being spiritual. It's saying to God, I have placed everything on the altar and we've only placed a partial gift there. It's saying to God, I have given my possessions that you have required of me and only given a token. It's saying to God and to others that I am really something when I'm not. The sin of carefully planned deceit leads to death. The second sin is found in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and it is the sin of persistent sexual immorality. Now Paul says in the fifth chapter that there is an immorality going on in the church by a member of the church that even the Gentiles would not think of doing. Even the pagans wouldn't do. For in this church at Corinth, there was a man who was carrying on a, a illicit sexual relationship with his stepmother. And it was an arrogant thing. They were doing it before all eyes. Everybody was aware of it in the church. They knew it was happening. And not only was it an arrogant act on the part of this man and woman, But there was indifference in the church. Paul said, you have not mourned over it. The people in the church didn't care that it was going on. And so the Apostle Paul said, I have decided to deliver that man up to Satan for the destruction of the flesh in order that his spirit might be saved when Jesus returns again. So persistent sexual immorality within God's people is the sin that leads to death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said, Do you not know that your body is the temple of God? And if you desecrate, he said, this temple of God, God will destroy you so that persistent promiscuity and sexual relationships that are not within the plan of God is the sin that leads to death. Third sin is found in the 16th chapter of the book of Numbers where a man by the name of Korah 
led a mutiny with 250 of the leaders of the Exodus against Moses' leadership. And these men decided they were going to get rid of Moses. They didn't like wandering around in the wilderness and they blamed him for it. And so they got this group of people, 250 together, and they were going to run Moses off and get rid of him. And the next morning, the book of Numbers says that the earth opened up and swallowed all of them, 250 of them and the man Korah. And this is the sin. It's the sin of touching God's anointing. For God, listen carefully, God will avenge... That would not preach a sermon, preach another revival, except for these exceptions. That I would just go and preach revivals of young guys who had been my students, you know, at seminary at Fort Worth, or who had grew up in a church that I pastored, and when I were pastoring, or I would preach revivals in mission situations, like over in England. Now, I've not shared this with anybody, but what brought me to this decision in my life was this. Almost without exception, in every church where I went to preach, I found this conflict going on between the ministers in the church and some in the congregation. Just everywhere I found it. And for about a week, I would just listen to these ministers with pour out these stories of heartbreak as these men and women in the church standing against them to get rid of them. While I was over in England, I heard about R.C. Kendall. R.C. Kendall is the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, the most prestigious pulpit in the, in the nation of England. It's where Martin Lloyd-Jones preached. It's where G. Campbell Morgan preached. It's the most pre prestigious pulpit in Britain. A few weeks ago, or months ago now, some things begin to develop in R.C. Kendall's life with regard to evangelism. They didn't even have an invitation in that church. He started having invitations. People started getting saved. And the church has turned against him. And he said, six of my deacons, I had 12 deacons, six of them resigned from deaconship in order to run R.C. Kendall out of, of the Westminster pulpit. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the big scandals that is going on in London today. Now, I'm not saying that ministers are infallible. God knows that, that I'm not saying that. Nor am I saying that what ministers, whether it be preachers or song directors or whatever, that, that they speak with inspired voices that are infallible. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about this lack of respect for the anointed and this lack of regard for the appointed. And God takes that seriously. Sin number four is a sin that is committed by Nadab and Abihu. Not necessarily your household words, but these men were sons of Aaron, the high priest, and they were priests. Now watch this carefully. They were given, as they took the priesthood, specific instructions concerning how they were to function at the altar of God. And the Bible says that they, they offered up strange fire. It doesn't even tell us what, it was, what in, was involved in that. They offered up strange fire on the altar of God. God struck them dead. It is it, evidently they were they were tampering with they were tampering with the liturgy that had been prescribed for the priest 
and they were offering up a, a false fire on the altar of God. Now, this is the sin. I think it corresponds with the, the quenching of the Holy Spirit of God. I think it corresponds with when we quench the fire on God's altar, when we quench the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a difference between grieving the Holy Spirit and quenching the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice the difference. Grieving the Holy Spirit is when you do not allow the Holy Spirit to work through you. Quenching the Holy Spirit is when you do not allow the Holy Spirit to work through others. Now, when a church or a group within the church are guilty of refusing to allow the Holy Spirit to work in that church... That's the sin that leads to death. And I think from my study and experience, there are three things that quench the Holy Spirit. One is a critical spirit. I mean, how can the Holy Spirit of God do His work in a church when there's a critical attitude? I mean, people come and somebody lifted their head. Oh, you know, they criticize that. They criticize the song service or the preaching, the preacher. They criticize the way money is spent. All they do is criticize. How can the Holy Spirit operate in that kind of atmosphere? The second thing I think quenches the Holy Spirit is an unforgiving spirit. And I have preached in churches where something happened years ago and people, you know, get grudges and they hold that against one another and they, they keep that old stuff down inside of them. And the greatest revival I have ever been in was when two men who had gotten in a conflict over some building program years ago and hadn't spoken to one another in years just suddenly got all that right at the altar of God and his fire fell on that place when that unforgiving spirit was, was dealt with. And then I think a third thing is when we begin to try to substitute human effort and human charisma and human resources for the Spirit of the living God. Carl Bates said that in the average Southern Baptist church, if the Holy Spirit suddenly withdrew Himself, we'd go on just like we did before. 90% of all we did, what we did, 90% of it would be go on just like it did before. We'd never miss the Holy Spirit. Quenching the Holy Spirit. Sin number five is the account, by the way, Nadab and Abihu, that reference is in the 10th chapter of Leviticus. Uh, the account of Uzzah, 1 Chronicles chapter 13. Now the Ark of the Covenant is the most precious, was the most precious utensil, vessel, to the Jews. It symbolized the presence of God. It was made of a of wood, inlaid with gold. It had the uh, covering of the atonement called the mercy seat. It was the throne of God. It was the seat of the Most High. And no man was to ever touch it. You could not put human hands on the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines stole the Ark in, when, in the destruction of Solomon's temple. And David now was on the throne. It was time to get the Ark back. And so he was bringing it back. He was bringing it back. And they had it on a cart and was being pulled by oxen. And Uzzah was there. And, and as they came to the threshing floor, the oxen stumbled and the cart tottered and the Ark of the Covenant started to fall and Uzzah put out his hands to protect it, to hold it from falling. And God struck him dead. 
Now, we don't understand why that would happen. You would expect maybe God would shout down from heaven, had a way to go, Uzzah, thank you for saving my ark. But he didn't. God struck him right then. And the sin is this. It's the sin of touching the glory of God. Let me tell you something. Listen carefully. We don't take this too seriously today. I mean, we think, we talk about, we, we take Christianity pretty loosely and lightly and indifferently, but they took it pretty seriously back then. And God is very jealous about His glory and His name, and He shares that glory with no one, and He will share His glory with no man. I tell you, when I hear a preacher boast about how well his church has done since he's come there as the pastor, I shudder. Because God will share that glory with no man. For anything that happens in the fellowship of a church that has any kind of meaningful and lasting significance is the result of God and not man. It's probably in spite of the man, not because of it. Sixth sin is the sin of King Saul found in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13. Now this is, what that, this is what it says about that sin. I'm quoting from that verse. Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord, hear this, because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep. Now here's the sin. It's the sin of refusing to keep God's word to you. Now here, watch this. God may speak to your heart out of His Word concerning His will at a certain point in your life, something He wants out of your life, something He wants into your life. I was sharing in the first service that a few months ago God showed me something in His Word that was in my life that I was placing in my life before Him. And He just keeps on bringing that back to me and I'm having to struggle with that, frankly, and I won't share that with you this morning, I'm at, but I am having to struggle with that. And I know this, that if God has told me from His Word something He wants or does not want in my life, and I refuse to keep that Word or obey it, I'm living on dangerous ground. Sin number seven is found in the 11th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, and it says that they did not discern the body of Christ, so some were sick and some died. Now what does that mean? Well, when they were participating in the Lord's Supper in that first century church, it says that some were not discerning His body. This is what it means. It means that a man handles indifferently sacred things. It's a lack of reverence for sacred things. It's a failure to sense greatness in the things of God. It's not to have a love and a respect for sacred things. An example is the example of how we treat God's Word, this holy Word, this sacred Word, how indifferently we handle holy things is a sin that leads to death. Now what is the sin that leads to death? It's the sin a Christian commits with a high hand that brings dishonor to his name and aborts his name in the world. Now the question has come to your mind and has come to mine. 
And the question is this, why isn't this going on now? I mean, if this is the sin that's unto death, why isn't it the sin that's unto death? I mean, if there ever was a time when men had carefully planned deceit and who pretended to be something they're not, it's our day. If there ever was a time when there was looseness with regard to the sanctity of sexuality, it's this day in which we live. If there ever was a time when there was lack of respect for the anointed of God, it's this day. If there ever was a time when the Spirit of God has been, is being quenched within the church by critical and unforgiving spirits, it's this day. If there ever was a time when men sought glory that belongs only to God, it's our time. If there ever was a time when the Word of God is clearly disobeyed and, and refused, it's our time. If there ever was a time when men handled indifferently sacred and holy things, it's our time. So why isn't the sin unto death the sin unto death? I think there are three answers that I have available. I think first of all because God seems to not punish this way he seems not to punish this way in non-revival times. He seems only to punish this way in revival times, when His face is, is revealed, when His glory and power is being revealed. Folks, we're living in non-revival times. Now we can say all we want to about this revival happening and that revival happening, but we're living in non-revival times and it seems that God doesn't act like this in those times. But when God is showing His face and God's Spirit is at work and God's power is on display, things like this cannot survive. Things cannot, cannot go on like this. That's the sin that's unto death. It happens in revival times. The, mo the, the kindest thing that Peter, that God could have ever done through Simon Peter to Ananias and Sapphira was to take them out of it. Because God was moving in that church. The second reason why the sin unto death is not the sin unto death is this. I think God wants to keep faith and love central in the church. In other words, if God just struck folks dead for carefully planned deceit, we'd serve Him out of fear, wouldn't we? I guarantee you we'd serve Him. We, we, we would, we'd serve Him out of fear. If God punished this way, we would serve Him out of fear of Him. And God wants us to serve Him out of love and faith. And the third answer is this that God is slow to anger. Lee and I were visiting up here just a minute ago about you know, the first service. This is a difficult sermon to preach. Theologically, it's heavy. And he said, you know, if, if those seven sins are the sins that God punished with death in the Scripture, and, he, and, and every account of those is in the Scripture, I mean, he, he punished rarely even in the Old Testament such a thing. That's true. Because God is slow to anger, and in the unfolding revelation of God's nature, He shows us how slowly 
He responds to our sin. How slow He is to anger and how long-suffering He is. And aren't you glad? Every time I preach, I wonder how any of us can think that God owes us another sermon. Where would you ever get the idea God owes you another sermon when, when some have never heard the first one? Where would you ever get the idea that God owes you another chance when some have never had the first chance? And somehow God in His patience just keeps on suffering with us in long suffering. And that's I'm convinced, is the main reason why when this sin is committed, He doesn't just strike us dead. Because God is long-suffering. But let me, let, me show, let me show you something. God's grace is not infinite. Does He not set limits to His grace? R.C. Sproul said when he was preaching his sermon at seminary, when he, he preached on the infinite grace of God. And after he got through, the professor said, Brother Sproul, where would you ever get the idea that God's grace is infinite? That's a song, but it's not scriptural. And he said, I started trying to think. He said, I was thinking in my mind as quick as I could some verse of scripture that says God's grace is infinite. He said, I knew I was in trouble because I couldn't think of one. Let me tell you something. Listen carefully. We serve an infinite God who is gracious. But this infinite God who is gracious has not promised that His grace is infinite. There is a time when the long-suffering of God runs out. I believe that. And I believe that all through the Scripture, God just warns us that one day the axe will fall at the foot of the tree and God's wrath will come because we have reached the limit of His grace. And so what he's saying over and over again, what First John's saying, what John is saying, his little children, listen up. Being a child of God is the most sacred thing you can ever be and it involves the most serious lifestyle you could ever have. You can't just saunter in to the kingdom and just treat God like you want to treat Him and not suffer consequences somewhere down the line. That's awesome and frightening. And so my invitation this morning to you is this. To join me in this concern that we may be treading where God does not want us to tread and come back and repent, come away and repent, come from and repent and ask God for His mercy and to draw us to Him in faith and surrender and commitment to walk as He wants us to walk. For there is a sin, persistent sin, that leads unto a premature death. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you're a God of mercy and grace. But at the same time, I thank you that you're a God who is in control, who does not couch or, or tolerate defiance and rebellion. A God whose other side is wrath. And I pray, God, that you'll help us today to know for sure where we stand and where we are and give us the courage and the willingness 
to repent. Because I pray in the name of Jesus and for His sake. Now there are three invitations this morning. The first invitation is for you to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Listen very carefully. Over and over and over again, God has called you to be saved. God has invited you to salvation. God has urged you by His Spirit to claim His salvation for yourself over and over and over and over again. Today is the day for that. Today is the day to be saved. The second invitation this morning is an invitation for us to say to God, Yes, Lord, I see where I am wrong. I want to come and rededicate myself to You. I don't want to displease You. I don't want to incur Your displeasure and wrath. I want to walk with You in fellowship. Or maybe this morning God would say again to your heart, I want you to place your life in the church. This is my will for you. This is my word for you. Over and over again, there's been that urging, that decision. Come today to do it. This is the day. While we stand to sing, we invite your response.